Hi, everyone, and thanks again for joining me for another one of my interviews here on GaudiumAtSpez22.com and my YouTube channel. And just FYI to everyone that's been asking, uh, I will post this as both a YouTube video and an audio file if people just want the audio file. And I'm going to be starting actually a podcast uh, I mean, a, 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 that'll be up on Spotify and Apple and all those sorts of things. So this Excellent. interview also might eventually be up on on, on those on those platforms everyone's been begging me oh your interviews are so good and we but we want to listen to it on you know apple or google or whatever okay yeah. so fine it's on its way i just good. i'm going to be using Podbean or something like that i don't know i i, I was re-listening to your interview with uh, cyril o'regan yesterday but i had to have it on youtube while i was driving it's like i just let it play through my because <laughs> i was like yeah and that that's the problem that's what yeah. oh, and okay so in case people don't know i'm interviewing once again i think for the third time maybe even more i don't yeah. know father harrison air third time on here at least you've been on my show a couple times i've too, been on your so. show and, father and we'll harrison get you back on there too. yeah yeah <laughs> and for those uh, who are listening it's spelled a y r e father harrison air who's a priest in western canada and he also runs the clerically speaking podcast that he does with Father Anthony, and I've been on uh, on that podcast once, I do believe. Twice, maybe, actually, I think. Maybe twice, twice. okay. Yeah. Twice. yeah, I lose track, I lose I track. I know, I lose track of and things, too, sometimes. It's a very, very popular podcast, and called Clerically Speaking, and I encourage all of my viewers and listeners to go check it out, because it's not only informative and fun, it's, it's, it's funny, and uh, it, it's great. So please go do that. But today, what, we're, what a lot of people may not know is that Father Harrison is also doing a doctoral dissertation for his doctorate on the thought of Joseph Ratzinger, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI. And I'm on a bit of a, a move these days to air a lot of interviews with Ratzinger experts. Last week, I did one with Dr. Roland uh, Millare. Uh, and his excellent uh, book on on Ratzinger. And uh, in a week or so, I'm going to be interviewing Father Vincent Tuomi, who, oh, uh, yeah, knew Ratzinger yeah. and uh, knows a lot about Ratzinger's politics and so forth as well. So that oh. I'll be that'll be coming up. So stay tuned. But today I'll have to get you in touch with uh, Dr. Andrew Kaithler, too, in Vancouver, who did his thesis on uh, Ratzinger and Schmemann. Ooh, that could be very interesting. I'll get okay, you in touch so, we're, we're going to have a whole Ratzinger theme here over the next couple of months. So, that, so that's great, because uh, I think he's a thinker who's, uh, who needs to be unpacked even more uh, mm -hmm. than, than what he is. Now, Father Harrison sent me a long email a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it, it was kind of in response. Maybe it was to my interview with Dr. Millare. I don't know. Yeah. Where Dr. Millare and I were, were wondering how to characterize Ratzinger's approach to politics, theologically speaking, and whether or not he fit into the category that has come to be known as sort of Catholic post-liberalism, post-liberal. Uh, you know, characters like a, a Michael Hanby, uh, a, a Patrick Deneen, and a few others who uh, are very, very critical of the political movement known as liberalism and have developed post-liberal concepts and that seems to be all the rage these days and full disclosure i would characterize myself in the in, in that school of thought mm -hmm. definitely in the school of thought represented by michael hanby in particular uh as post-liberal but it did seem to me and i raised this in the interview that it is somewhat difficult to pigeonhole joseph ratzinger even though he's critical at, at points of liberalism it's not exactly accurate to describe him as a post-liberal. 
And you, you wrote a long email in response to me. And so perhaps let's just begin by you uh, stating why you think it is true that it's a bit, not necessarily wrong, but it's simplistic to simply lump Ratzinger in with, with the post-liberal movement. It's just, it's just simplistic to lump Ratzinger period. (laughs) He's not lumpable with he's not just lumpable. about any <laughs> other way. He, he resists lumpation. Exactly. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the frustrating things sometimes of trying to even like write on him because he writes on so many different things. And so, but he's, he, he, because I think of, I've been reflecting on this lately, how because of his ecclesial career, his ability to develop more systematic works got kind of interrupted, essentially. Like eschatology is kind of his last big work. And then, I mean, Jesus of Nazareth is kind of his pet project he wanted to do over the years, but the rest of these things that he wanted to work on just never really got a chance to happen. Um, so, yeah, uh, with and and I would say that his, his discussion around the relationship between liberalism and democracy kind of comes out in... I would call it like I, I've been kind of periodizing uh, rats here into kind of three distinct periods right now. Um, it's a more of a thematic periodization than anything else where and in that sense, like he puts more emphasis again, he never neglects the rest of the questions. But in the right. night from his early theological career, some near formation up until about 1968, he's dealing with the question of existentialism is actually the big one for him right there. And then uh 1968 is a turning point not to becoming a conservative but the question changes he sees existentialism as um defeated essentially it couldn't grab hold and the revolts uh, the student revolts of 1968 is proof that it couldn't grab hold and that marxism became the uh the dominant idea that he then starts to deal with in this period yeah. and then stop there, and then, stop there yeah. one second uh, you mentioned the student revolt in 1968. Some of the viewers, yeah. listeners may not know exactly to what that is in reference. So very briefly, and I don't mean to interrupt you and lose your train of thought, but very right. briefly describe what, what that student revolt involved. It was just, I mean, uh, well, it's interesting because he actually doesn't, he speaks about it as an event, but he doesn't really go much into the details. He right. he talks about how um, students were, I think he then he's dealing more with the spiritual question, like what they were unhappy with. They found the post-war construction of Europe and Germany as dissatisfactory. Like it just did, it wasn't mean, it wasn't doing what they were trying to do. And that, and it's in the materialistic, uh, the material goods of the time were actually quite good. I think the employment rate in Germany is like 0.9% unemployment rate at the time. Yeah, so yeah. there are jobs everywhere. Everyone's working, like things are looking, it seems like for the first time there's, things are looking good. Uh, but the the revolt, I mean, France, it got into quite a lot of violence, obviously. Um, in Germany, there was just a lot of student revolts, protests, uh, it, yelling in classrooms, like a, a real violent, like there was like, I would call it like an intellectual violence if you to try and and bring a kind of Marxist uh, vision to things at this time. Uh, it, it kind of fails. It's like I call it like a half failure. It doesn't grab hold politically, obviously, but it does grab hold culturally. And spiritually. Yeah. Okay. Right. And he kind of talks about this actually in his letter as Pope Emeritus on the sex abuse crisis. Right. He yeah. talks about how there was a real revolution of, of, of thought around sex and so, and so on and so forth around this period, too. And it really brought a real change. Like it was a really uh, quickened cultural change and shift that was totally foreign to what they knew before. Yeah. Okay. Go back to then yeah. your train of thought and existentialism yeah. had failed and so on. Right. Go on. So then, um, so then 1989 happens, the fall of, of, of the Eastern Bloc and Russian communism uh, uh, fails and it, 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 the Russian, the communist state falls apart. 
And, and so it's in this period, as, as head of the Congregation for Doctrine of Faith, that he begins to deal with the question of democracy uh, more particularly. And it's really in this period that the question about what is Europe really emerges in his thought. And so his political thought, qua political thought, I think comes to its greatest maturation and its greatest intensity in uh, the post-1989 period. Um, I think part of this is due to his position. He thinks, and he thinks Europe has something distinctive to offer. And his critiques go often, like, so because he's such a subtle thinker, and uh, he's always, he's never going to just pit it all on one thing. But I would argue, I, I'm arguing essentially that his critiques of liberalism, or would you call it more like liberal capitalism, uh, is falling under the same pressures as Marxism, which is a materialistic interpretation of history and man. Why? Because he's criticizing more particularly, at least in terms of Europe, uh, and Europe unification. And he's not against European unification, by the way. He was actually very pro it in its initial forms because of its Christian roots. Uh, it was actually trying to bring about a Christian informed democracy again. Um, but there's a large fear in Europe around religion in general because of like they're still fearful of the 17th century, essentially, and the the wars of religion. It's it's like an existential threat that hangs over their head to this day. Um, but he's really fighting against a a what he calls like a materialistic vision of man and and culture and society. So Europe is tr he sees the European model of of shaping history around economics, and that's his big kind of that's his attacking point constantly. It's actually in this period that he speaks somewhat positively of the American experiment, actually. Uh, interestingly, uh, not okay. uh, not not tout court, but more in its in its origins. He loves to quote De, Co uh, De Tocqueville in this time about why is the American like why is the American experiment seeming to work? Well, they have a unified Christian vision of morality, which is the underpinning, the cultural underpinning that allows democracy to thrive. And so for for De Tocqueville and for Ratzinger, he says this is the argument that that Christ, that that for a state to be properly a state, and this gets into like your dignitatis humanae uh, discussions, it needs to be undergirded by something transcendent to itself, namely God, uh, universal moral commandments. He actually thinks that this is an area where the Enlightenment can actually have some positive influence here to determine how do you, like how do you do this in a pluralistic society for example but he's really going after materialism as like a as an underpinning thing and now and this is the interesting thing because i know you're a fan of augusto del noche and uh i and was I, just I, gonna I, bring yeah, him up yeah. very good because, go for yeah, it beca because del noche from what i've read of him at least and, I, and you can correct me if i'm wrong del noche seems to see like with the fall of communism in russia its materialistic trends then kind of flow into europe at this time ratzinger sees uh materialism way earlier way 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 earlier that it yeah. he actually sees it as essentially the since the enlightenment essentially it's been the normative way of seeing nature world man history etc and so he actually does not see it as necessarily something much later he actually sees it as something much earlier and so the forces of history itself have been strongly moved by materialistic ideologies in one form or another. So he's going after, so his, his thing with, with liberalism in it's, itself is he's saying not that he, like, he actually thinks democracy can be a good thing. He actually oh, does. Imagine think that. that. Wow. I know. Um, but it needs to be rooted in a, a perspective and relationship with God. It needs to be rooted in some, some form of a natural law. And it, and it needs to be um, not materialistic. 
and this is where I think his apologetic, if you will, I think is its strongest because, and he does this, his forward to introduction to Christianity in the 2000 edition is, is it's a masterpiece. <laughs> like it's a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, this is where he goes into these ideas a lot. Um, he sees the failure of Marxism as a failure to account for man's spirit. Right. And that its fall is actually kind of proof of the fact of its blood, almost bloodless fall. It wasn't through war or anything else. It was through man's encounter under persecution with his own freedom and his ability to withstand in suffering for a greater good. He's going after Europe, for example, then with its notions of liberalism and its economic, its liberal capitalism as a um, as falling for the same error of materialism that Mark, that Russian Marxism did. And he's saying, yeah, so he sees and it really actually what he's trying to say to Europe is say European Union. Fine. He actually has no problem with it. He thinks it's a good thing for a variety of reasons, but it needs to be authentically European. And Europe is not Europe without Christianity. Like Europe as an idea is impossible without Christianity. And if you want to be unique in the world, if you really want to shape the world in history, you have to stand above this materialistic form because it creates competition. And there could and there are greater economic forces than Europe out there that can get great gain kind of greater hold of things. It can suffocate Europe. What makes Europe distinctive as a shaper of the world is its Christianity. And that that is why he keeps on like harping at them saying, don't fall for the same error as Marxism. Look to man's spirit. Man is a spiritual and free creature and make that like the anthropological basis of society. Okay. So in, in a lot, in a lot of ways, it, there's a, there's a resonance here in with John Paul II as well, because I remember when communism fell and, and of course, everyone, the Pope was happy that Poland was now free, free to be its own nation, but almost immediately John Paul starts hammering away at the yeah. idea that now that we have broken free of the Marxist stranglehold, the Soviet stranglehold in Poland, we must avoid now falling into the opposite uh, extreme of Western consumeristic capitalism, which yeah. also then has that common materialistic uh, foundation. And you saw John Paul railing against that. And please, my fellow Poles, do, do not succumb to this materialistic temptation. And sadly, it seems as if Poland is succumbing to that. Exactly. Temptation. Exactly. Yeah. No, no, exactly. And I wouldn't be, I mean, obviously these two work so closely together. Yeah. One can't help, but, uh, but see their, the crossover with another. I mean, I would love to find out through archives one day how much Ratzinger had, how much Ratzinger wrote a very Tatis Splendor. <laughs> oh yeah, that would be because a very like, interesting deep dumpster dive into textual criticism. Because for Ratzinger, one of his key criterias of history and everything is martyrdom. Like it's it's like for him like the existential stance of of the Christian. And uh, there's a whole section on Christian martyrdom in Very Tatis Splendor. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is yeah. and there's also i mean and i don't want to get too far yeah. from coming back to your train of thought there are also deep resonances there with hans urs von balthasar's yeah. uh, po polemical little book uh you know quoted order to ansfall in english the moment of christian witness mm -hmm. uh, but balthasar repeats it elsewhere as well that the nature of christian existence is cruciform and therefore the mm -hmm. ultimate mark of the christian in christian life is some form of martyrdom Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so this seems to be a current that runs through Balthazar, Ratzinger, 
Voitiwa, you know, ac across the board, which I think yeah. is interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go back to your email, though, and not yeah. stray too far from the this uh, notion that what Ratzinger was most concerned with in modern politics was its materialism. So mm -hmm. you, you said something very interesting in the email where you said that it's, it's probably better to characterize uh, Joseph Ratzinger not as post-liberal, but as post-materialist, <laughs> uh, you know, which I think is probably kind of true. Yeah. And I, I also think that it's true based on my limited reading of Ratzinger, mm -hmm. uh, that he goes further than Del Noche. In, in seeing the roots of this materialism all the way back already in, in yeah. the Enlightenment. And I, and I suppose others would roll it back even further into the rise of nominalism. Right. Um, in, he can't set that here and there sometimes too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always hesitate to drag nominalism into the thing because everybody, <laughs> <It's so easy. laughs> yeah, everybody in their blind pet hamster wants to blame nominalism for everything, you know? It's yeah. like... I can show you in five easy historical steps right. the path from nominalism to the Holocaust, the show. Right. You know, and it's like, oh, well, okay. Nominalism was bad, but yeah. Uh, well, but actually, and at some that, point, go, I mean, I this is one of the yeah. problems of intellectual genealogies. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, but anyway, you were going to say something. Well, go I was going to say, I would call, like, for example, here, like, I would actually call Ratzer, like, uh, maybe like a, a limited genealogist. Yes. Because genealogy in some way shape or form at least as it's often portrayed sticks to almost it kind of falls victim to this kind of materialistic notion of science and knowledge and, and so on and so forth he see but, but like he see he does he is not denying material conditions like that that's the other thing he's also not being like hegelian here either by the way like he is not denying yeah. our embodiedness or any way shape or form he's german he tends to love to speak in these grand summative words that uh, can seem abstract and therefore disembodied, but he is by no way, shape or form uh, anti antibody or anti-material or even noticing how the material that there are like, he's like, he's always saying like Marx is right about material conditions. He's just wrong that he thinks that we don't have a freedom to rise above it. Yeah. Right? So he, yeah. He, he has no problem with this. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's his great genius in some ways. He's always willing to like, to great pains and probably to some annoyance to a lot of people, he will always find some form of good in whoever he's engaging with. Yeah, always. yeah, I think that's he, true. You know, it, it, it's a mark of his intellectual charity. And you see that actually in practice when he was head of the CBF. You hear him pulling people in the office and he's bending over backwards to keep them in communion with the church and, and reads them with such a generosity. They say, you know, you went to the office, you felt, you felt like he read you, he understood yeah. you. Which hey, is just, yeah. just uh, Father Harrison, I think you need to stay closer to your microphone. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. This, yeah. As soon as you back away, <laughs> your voice gets a little tinny. And, gotcha. And okay. Sorry. So I, uh, I but I agree with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, 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 and that's the thing here. It's important for uh, Catholic intellectuals, I think, to engage in these kinds of intellectual genealogies because the genealogical tradition, I mean, especially as it flows through Nietzsche and then on into the modern world, uh, is very destructive. In, in, mm -hmm. its, in its own way. Um, and so we have to tease out of uh, the intellectual genealogy, a, a sort of a, a different a different pathway than, than what it right. actually takes in, in the dialectic of a kind of materialist understanding of things. 
I was going to say two things with this. So that the, the, I would call him like limited genealogist. I mean this by like, and I think this fits into his like larger vision of, of history as it works and unfolds. He is, he recognizes that, but for him, it, it's actually like, it's not a genial, it's not a, he, he is not a material genealogist in any way, shape or form. He, I, like I call it like, there is a logic to history, but it's the logic of freedom and person. And yeah, so for him, yeah, these yeah. events matter because they mediate something real that we're still acting out of today. Um, when I say that word reason today, it is heard very differently than a medieval would hear it. Why? Because of real historical events and how I receive as a human being uh, forms me in a new way. And we need to be yeah. aware of that. And that's vital and important. And that there are still like, so when he's talking about the past, he's not talking about it as a, as a relic to show, well, we actually have to kind of, for him, genealogy in its best sense is always something uh, mediatory about today. He's always like the past is actually being mediated today through like yeah. that. That like, so for him, the French Revolution is a big event. It's a it's a foundational event for him. It is the event the church has been trying to wrestle with for the last two centuries. If there's a polit if there's anything he is post of besides like materialism as like an intellectual idea in terms of politics, he is he is definitely post French Revolution a hundred percent. He's and he says that this is like this is why Vatican II was called actually was to deal yeah. with the French Revolution, uh, but. So yeah go ahead go ahead um yeah so i but just like with this notion of history then that that it's not just like a a scientific investigation of the past but that because it for him history mediates being like this is his big thing really yeah uh, yeah and that you can't you have to have them so well together this investigation of the past is always at work in the present and so when he's like talking about 1989 he's talking about it in such a way because it's really still experienced today and so he's actually always trying to engage man today. And so if he's ever doing a genealogy, it's always in reference to the today, whereby we now have the opportunity to make a free choice for God anew. And he's trying to reveal, like, so we can maybe go into this later. It's something I'm still developing a bit, but it's what I call like his apocalyptic apologetics. He's always well, trying we will to come reveal. Back to that. Yeah, because yeah. well, he's always trying to reveal the inner structure of man and history and, and to show that actually man is always searching for God, even when he isn't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very true, and and I, I definitely want to come back to that because that yeah. fascinates me—a notion of a, a, a sort of this dragging the category of apocalyptic into this. Uh, but I want to go back to the French Revolution, yeah. and and I, I think because I think he's entirely accurate, and it, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to use the cliche to figure out uh, that the church did indeed react and react strongly to to the French Revolution mm -hmm. and you know, laicite and. Um, and the secularization, the rapid secularization of, of French society and the, and the sort of the de-establishment of the church and the pushing of the church to the margins, mm -hmm. which then set the tone for the rest of Europe uh, and, and what went on there. And the reaction, I mean, you cannot understand modern Catholicism. Uh, and this is hard for Americans sometimes to get their minds around because we don't have that European focus. But well up until modern times, the church was Eurocentric in its in its intellectuals, in its in its vision, in its attitude towards politics. And the fact of the matter is the French Revolution, as far as many in the church were concerned, ruined everything. 
And that then caused the church to retrench, retrench, circle the wagons, put it in this defensive posture vis-a-vis civil society with both fists. So it gave Catholicism this, its classic formulation is fortress Catholicism, both fists up pugilistically. We were being assaulted by Protestants. We were being assaulted by science and enlightenment, reason and and secularism. We were being assaulted then now in, in the political domain. So now we need to, in a sense, firmly ensconce papal infallibility you know as as this dogma that is a bulwark not that i oppose papal infallibility mm-hmm. but it, you know its mm-hmm. uses it's as this context, yeah. this bulwark against the modern yeah. world set the tone for the, the view of many then in in europe was the catholic church is simply opposed to modernity uh, right. And so that that leads Ratzinger to the conclusion that this is exactly why the Second Vatican Council was needed. Now, you said in your email that then Ratzinger goes on to say the problem with the council isn't that it's been embraced too much, but that it's been embraced too little. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's been way. I mean, and I think people who read your blog or listen to your videos, I think, know this. Uh, they know this very well. It's yeah. because. Like, I mean, the at least the Camino interpretation, which I really do think is the valid interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae. And D.C. Yeah. Schindler's, I think, brought this out quite well around that. Like, its argument is still saying, no, no, after life, obviously, because you can't have any other rights without life, uh, man's first right is religious. And not as yeah. like this, but the problem is we actually in North America still read it through a murriest lens of a blank slate of freedom. Yeah, But freedom in a Christian context is actually... Uh, it's 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 in relationship with other persons and with God. So it's like got its horizontal in this this vertical a uh, relationship, and it can't be freedom without choosing the good of both. And thus, to be free, to actually exercise religious freedom, is to exercise one's search for the truth, which is God, and that that is the principle around which all society is to be oriented around and constructed around. <laughs> that is a radical <laughs> argument when you think about yeah, it. But it's saying that God. this can happen in a non-integralist fashion. And I think actually, I think Schindler has been just so good about this because he's kind of listened to the integralist critiques and says, actually, there is some truth here again. Like there is something here and we need to listen to that. But at the same time, that it, it's its problem is that it's actually uh, not Christian enough. It's not because it's actually it actually can allow for it has to allow for a freedom to exercise itself historically. Which means like, yeah, it can it can be a society if you want. Maybe this is a little too pie in the sky right now in our current climate of the world. But imagine a, a society that organized itself around the notion of religious freedom. And it saw that the Catholic vision of this was its best instantiation. Uh, a Hindu could actually probably be most a Hindu in a Catholic world because it would recognize the truth that's there. And it would say, you know, just continue to be oriented. Toward, it's not it's not saying like it's not being value neutral. It's saying, no, no, we have the truth. We do. But the truth is lived out. His, there is a historicity to the truth and it's and it's being lived out and searched for. And so you have to leave a space for man to discover this truth. And if we're all oriented towards this truth, it can actually live, allow for a, a vibrant pluralism without imposition, but also without being value neutral. And I think uh for Ratzinger, that is actually, I think, a very vibrant vision. I think his arguments around the European Union is actually a big part of, of, of this. Um, I would then also say then for him, really, and I, it's not something I've been going into too much. I've just kind of dabbled in this a bit because my German is still pretty shoddy. So I depend on a lot of translation software to help me with it. But I've been dabbling in his 
doctoral thesis on Augustine, which I'm oh, yeah, surprised to this, translate. You mentioned, yeah, you mentioned in your email the so, Augustinian roots of yeah. a lot of this. And, and I think I think a good English uh, um, a correlate to this is is John Cavadini. I think he presents a Ratzingerian interpretation of the city of God. Uh, so for Ratzinger, there is a mutual interdependence for his reading of Augustine. There is a mutual interdependence between church and world. You can't have one without the other. The world, if you will, is kind of like the matter to the form of the church. You can't the church like even when I'm saying mass at my church here in Nanaimo, I'm 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 in Nanaimo. I, I require secular builders to put up this like it's it's it, it we we the church absorbs takes in and without destroying transforms and lifts it up to go to the glory of god but this is the yes. catholic way but it's always intermingled there's not this this harsh dialectic uh, this harsh uh separation that they actually are mutually indwelling and, and that he i think he does a very convincing job as does cavadini and others that this is actually augustine's vision he's not trying to set up two opposing forces and it's actually quite realistic because he's always then he says like the church then is actually kind of fallen and it's always going to be fallen because it's in a fallen world. But it has to be in the fallen world in order to enter into that world and lift it up. This is like the heart of uh, Vatican II's notion of universal call to holiness, of its yeah. uh, vocation and dignity of the laity, of its missionary output. It recognizes a world church dynamic, and I'm I'm kind of bracketing Gaudium specific here because it is a little different. But um, there is this like dynamic world church dynamic in which the church to be herself really must be out in the world without necessarily being integrating into it in a forced way, but proposing, as John Paul always likes to say, and inviting the world into the church and thus lifting her up into her true end and goal, which is God. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there's an analogical sort of relationship there and, and yeah. it's first it's not an equivocal relationship it's analogical and david right. c schindler in his book the politics of the real brings this out very very clearly where and i and i i don't know what rotzinger would would think of this i'm i'm assuming he would agree where, where schindler points out you know that there are those who would say well the reason why we need religious freedom is because the state has no competence in matters of religion and it should right. therefore just stay out of matters of religion that's a kind of murray-esque sort of approach to things here this yeah. separation that's the american model separation of church and state because religion is not in the competency of the state now that's schindler david c schindler the younger because the elder just passed yeah. away i want to make that distinction clear uh, points out that this is actually a kind of modernist understanding of things yeah. uh, uh, because the fact of the matter is the the, the, the the spiritual concerns are the concern of the state. And to a certain extent, the state does have to have a certain competency in spiritual matters that mm -hmm. the church then has to, in a sense, either correct or ratify or pay attention to or whatever. Mm -hmm. But to say that the church, that the state has no no competency in matters of, of, of religion is therefore to then sequester religion in, in an altogether different ontological plane of existence that has really no purchase on the civil and social sphere. Uh, and, and, and so as, as Schindler points out, both church and state have spiritual concerns, but they're mm -hmm. analogically related in the, insofar yeah. as the church it, the church's focus on matters spiritual is is different from the state's focus on matters spiritual, right. which is why the two need to co to cooperate. Now, of course, all hard in, 
I think I'm going to get back to the Ratzinger and what his views are on liberalism, you know, and why it might be in some ways a good thing, because all hard integralisms uh, so far have crashed and burned Mm -hmm. on the altar of intolerance, on the altar Mm -hmm. of repression and oppression, on the altar of church and state collusion at the highest levels of power uh, in order to give the church social privileges, material privileges, ideological privileges and all those mm-hmm. things. And this is one of the reasons why integralism, the hard integralism has such a bad name uh, and has led to the notion that, that they should just be completely separated from each other. Uh, so liberalism comes in and says, yet we're not going to have these church and state relationships. Religion is thus going to be privatized in this, in this mm-hmm. zone of subjectivity. So, um, obviously, that's a thumbnail caricature of, of, of liberalism, but I think there's a great deal of truth in it. What, is, what then does Ratzinger see as the strengths and the weaknesses of liberalism so, as it has just concretely historically manifested itself? Not necessarily in theory, but yeah. at, just as hard integralisms have crashed and burned, has yeah. not liberalism crashed and burned based on certain defects and faults? So what is Ratzinger's concrete analysis of liberalism? So two things there first just is more general uh and it's not necessarily ratzinger is that that Murray-esque or just that the 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 liberal notion of religious freedom as kind of murray likes to tout is itself a victim of a nature grace separation yes it was not possible and it, it's, it's not even a possible proposal without christianity itself because of the christian notion of the world and the world is having its own dominant sphere is only possible because of Christianity itself. Like, like, like we do not realize how indebted the West is to Christianity still. And the reason it's going off kilter is because it refuses to, it, it's been twisted off yeah. and taken apart from its roots. And I think this is something generally rats here would argue um, when it comes to liberals. And actually one thing your question already proposes in my head, that I def- definitely need to look into more is how does he distinguish between liberalism and democracy? Good point. Because I think he does make, I think he would make a distinction. And maybe in that sense, if you were to make a separation of those two, I think he would then maybe, you could maybe more easily label him post-liberal. Um, but that they shouldn't, I don't think he, I think he might see them differently. The reason being, he speaks very positively of the German democratic experience of the 1950s, the post-war German democratic experience. Uh, he saw it as a very hopeful time. Uh, and this is the other thing, like people have to realize like, like the hopefulness, like I'm really realizing how hopeful the world was in the fifties and yes. early sixties, because wait, we can live together and not kill each other. Yeah. So you, yeah. you, it, it helps you like understand yeah. a bit more why they're a bit more optimistic. And, and even, even he did, he, his pessimism does start to come out in the mid sixties is his, or at least his more critical turn. And if there's a turn, it's that, but his theology is always the same. But there was he really speaks fondly of, of of the German experiment and how rooted like how it was to be under God and how it was to be under a Christian Christian principles of morality. I think in that concrete experience, he would say, This is what Schindler's arguing for, essentially. The state yeah. recognizes yeah. itself that it has to be limited because we've seen what happens when the state becomes totalitarian, when it becomes the all. It leads to absolute destruction and death. So we have to recognize there are limits to the state. Stop right there. And that those limits are are actually natural in, yes. in, in, limits in the sense of flowing out of other organic communities within society that are not the state, that have legitimacy in their own. In other words, 
arguing against the notion that whatever limitations the state has are self-imposed by the state. Right. Which which then is just a backhanded way of reasserting the total hegemony and totalitarianism of the state, however self-limiting right. that might be. So go exactly. ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and what is really fascinating, I can't remember which book it was in. Um, it gets confusing sometimes because God bless them, but Ignatius Press, when they they release a lot of his Europe books, and sometimes they cross-publish different articles in the same, like the same article in like two or three books sometimes. Just like, which, yeah. where is it? Which one is it anyways? Um, but he has this really interesting argument that, and Christianity has actually proven itself in one way, in its in its moral uh, teaching. So for all our hatred of moralism and everything, uh, uh, even in the church, like, like moralism for its own sake can be destructive when it's disrooted from Christ. He says, uh, or derooted from Christ, he actually argues that, the Ten Commandments have proven themselves essential to proper living in, in the world. And that this is a contribution that both Israel and, and Christianity actually really, uh, the state is really required if it wants to actually flourish. The state is required to order itself around this because it's proven itself. Regardless of, uh, of the sinfulness of members, these these things have not only proven to be consistent, but of, of, of real enduring value. And this actually, this is kind of recognized as true in liberal democracies today. We still, a lot of these things that we talk about, even the notion of rights, everything, uh, we still talk about dignity, although it gets often twisted. These are yeah. only possible because of Christianity, because they've proven themselves true. But for him, he says, you, these, you can't at the same time. And this is where I think he would distance himself from certain natural law theorists when we talk about the Christian moral tradition, it has to be Christian. It has to be Christ-rooted. It has to be a recognition of who Christ is yeah. and what he yeah. believes himself and what we, uh, we proclaim him to be. Otherwise, our moral, otherwise, that moral teaching falls apart. You can't have dignity without Christ, essentially. It's impossible. Uh, yeah, this is, it, yeah. You know, this is one of my bugaboos, and it's been a bugaboo of mine for a long time, the limitations of natural law theory. Mm -hmm. uh, because... When you when you look carefully at it, natural law theory makes no sense absent some notion of God. I mean, the whole theory exactly. is grounded in it's our participation in the eternal reason of God, as we can detect it in the you know in the paradigms and structures of of, of the of the created world. Uh, and and so you know, and and secularists can also see those same patterns. Uh, the difference being is that if you reject if you reject God then there's no reason why those patterns should be viewed as normative. Exactly. What gives natural law theory its normative precepts is precisely the fact that there's a sort of divine element contained yeah. within those. That's why they're normative. And I think that Ratzinger, therefore, rightly wants to say Christ, that's why he's so Christocentric. At oh, yeah. some point, the distinction between moralism and a real morality has got to be that the latter contains this Christic element. And and this is why he he does some analysis around this because he says it's interesting the Enlightenment never really questioned the Christian moral tradition. Why? Right. Why? Because it presumed still in different forms. Obviously, God is creator. Yes. So for him, like he goes on a real bender in the eighties on the theology of creation. And like he he really is is trying to develop it. He gives a lecture. To, I I. Uh, I got a, a sneak peek at the English translation of a book that's coming out 
this next year in Ignatius Press, uh, 1985, the Gotis Project, uh, the God Project, the Divine Project, uh, uh, like six oh, lectures. I, oh, I, I have that, actually. Oh, nice. nice. I, I think I was asked to blurb it or something. Oh, anyway, nice. Go ahead. I, I was helping the translator out with some things. And, uh, uh, and so as I was reading this, I'm like, this is, it, it, it's very similar to his In the Beginning. There's a lot of similar themes there. And he's fighting materialism again, right? But he's saying that if you don't have a notion that God is creator, you really in the end actually have no morality. You only have materialism. There is right. like like right. this is right. this is the logic of a of an uncreated world. And and so he and he really goes after evolutionism as a logic, not not against evolution. He has no problem with it as a theory or as a scientific principle or anything like that. But when it becomes the determiner of life, again, so it's another form of, of his attacks on materialism. You, you just can't uh if this is the case like it's almost it becomes irrational even me talking about this stuff because what's the point there is no meaning there is no end uh it, you cannot uh, all these things yeah, we're searching yeah, for image yeah. like i was reading and some bits of ann carpenter's theopoetics on balthazar today and uh, balthazar makes a similar argument in um um Apocalypse, the Duchen seal uh apocalypse of the german soul right german where soul. where yeah where that the the german move of of an openness to transcendence he wants to affirm but what he wants to not affirm and this is in the school of blondel do the back all these guys too is that that end can be achieved that that transcendence desire can be achieved within the imminent realm and that's the problem yeah. and and yeah. Ratzinger's essentially making it the same critique except okay. he's going after evolutionism here right so you, you remove God as creator, you have no moral foundation. You can't have a natural law theory. You can't actually even have a, a commonality discourse. I think this is where you're seeing the crumbling. So for him, like getting back to your earlier question about some of his, where he would stand today. And it is interesting. Like, it's hard to say because he's such a historical thinker in terms of like large historical events. He's kind of gone silent for so long. It's hard to think. It's, it's hard for me to put words in his mouth. But I would think that he would say something to the effect of, see, I told you this is the problem of materialism and, 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 and in, in, in democracies and in any civil society uh, we cannot be living this way we actually have to rediscover man's spiritual uh, character and um and until the state does that things are going to go more and more awry and it's going to become more and more totalitarian so for example like democracy he does have a one of his beasts with democracy is when it's so i think this is where we make a distinction between maybe liberal and democratic a liberal notion of democracy tends to just always put the value of truth on the majority yes for him you can't do that again that's why he saw the initial part of the american project so as such a value because it actually tried to do this but what's happening in america now it's moved away so is that a problem with democracy is that a problem with liberalism or is it a bit of a problem with both i am honestly not sure what he would say there i think he would go more after liberalism per personally because i think he essentially would say there's actually like a like he actually speaks positively and i can't remember where i can't remember exactly he says but he speaks very positively of the notion of democratic socialism uh akin to blondel does something similar actually right this notion these 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 um these communal ways of uh, approaching democracy whereby we actually have to hold up certain norms to govern society but for him again in the end it has to be rooted in god oh absolutely and but this all of this it, it, I mean, John Paul talked about the eclipse of God. I think Ratzinger used similar language about the eclipse of God. Uh, and in some ways, it means the, 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 the not just that people don't believe in God, but the, sort of the, the complete nullification of the importance in the question right. uh, at, its, at its root, that God is simply nullified as, as a meaningful even question. 
right. uh, or provocation. But anyway, all of this sort of leads to, to just a, a very basic fundamental question that I have for you. In, in, in Rotzinger's view, maybe you can't answer this. Maybe there is no answer. What is the essence of liberalism? Well, we've been talking, maybe we should have asked this question at the very yeah. beginning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've been throwing the word around liberalism as this sort right. of easy shorthand for a set of political arrangements and ideologies that we all sort of instinctively know because we live within. But what does Ratzinger, the thinker, identify as, as the core essence of the liberal vision of, of our political arrangement? I think for him, and I think this would actually fall into a critique of it, is that it is an attempt ultimately, when I was studying Balthazar there a bit ago, um, to find our transcendent end imminently. That yes. this is this is this is I think so for him again. That's where his materialistic critique essentially comes out. Uh, you're, you're trying to find yes. this this totalizing thing within something that can't be total, and so I think for him that is that is the big error. And this and so why do people keep on why does Europe keep on focusing on the French Revolution? Because it was such a historically violent event in some ways that really instantiated this idea of us trying to find our end within ourselves. So like understanding this has helped me understand Blondell a lot more why he goes the way he does. And and, and this is but and this is the fun part of Ratzinger, Balthazar, uh do the back on this. They don't uh, they don't shy away from imminentism. They don't shy away from what? Imminentism. Oh imminentism. They're, they're not afraid of it. They're not afraid of it. Why? Because the the canonic notion of truth they have. Yes. You can you can enter into something. The truth can enter into something without being overwhelmed by it. Because if it's true, it cannot be destroyed. This is so key. To me, this is so key. This is the heart. I, 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 I'm, I'm tempted to say you have spoken well, Grasshopper, because <laughs> it, 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 it tweaks all of my confirmation <laughs> biases because it, that is just... <laughs> <laughs> that's all my hobby horses uh right there that yeah. the essence of liberalism is in a sense the 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 supplanting of the transcendent with the imminent as our yeah. final end yeah. and the the attempt to view human life purely and simply through the lens of the of the imminent domain the imminent realm which is i think an even more radical point of view than simply materialism i mean it's it's right. ideological grounding is in materialism yes. uh, but then it, it 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 goes another step it, you know it it goes this next step and and, and says well the whole thing uh, all the way down is now the whole religious question now is just nullified and and everything about about in other words we can have freedom of religion so long as we all stipulate that it has no purchase on anything beyond exactly. your private subjectivity <laughs> that's the stipulation yeah. those are the rules of the game yes. because everything ultimately has to come back to this imminent frame this imminent domain therefore the answer is not and i'm on my hobby horse now the answer is not for the, for theologians or the church to respond by then going into a hypertrophy of transcendence yeah. as in competition with that imminence, but to right. out imminentize the imminentizers. Yes. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And this was the yeah. Delubachian project in a yes. nutshell. You mm -hmm. can see it throughout in the drama of atheist humanism, his very important book. 
that the the goal isn't to, in a sense, repudiate humanism and immanentism. Yes, but to develop a deeper and more profound humanism rooted in a deeper and more profound concept of the imminent, as you correctly point out, we can do this because of our kenotic notion, Christological notion of truth. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we're right back to your big deal, which is, in Ratzinger, the historical mediation. Yes, exactly. 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 Man, so much there. Um, And this gets back to your earlier question, that uh, Vatican II hasn't been lived enough. Because... I would say everything you just said is the heart of Vatican II. And I actually even think that it, the more problematic passages of Gaudium et Spes that you struggle with a bit more, if you read it with some charity and submission of intellect and religious submission of intellect and will as we're supposed to with magisterial documents, if you take that canonic notion of truth seriously, um, yes. you, can, you can understand this kind of hopefulness that's possible at least with the world. Um, so when it's not been, when, when I say that, when Ratzinger would say that Vatican II has not been tried out enough, he's essentially saying, stop privatizing the faith. Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. Now, this, you're buying in to the very thing that's destroying you. And you're going to find, and so what happens is we find all these secondary problems that we think are the real problem. It's the form of the mass. It's the uh, it's the the wokeism of the world. It's this. It's that. It's it's like, and those are all problems. And they they, but they're not properly rooted in the fundamental problem. We are historically conditioned, in a way, around this imminent frame. But and this is where Ratzinger's kind of apologetics takes its turn, like you're saying. Uh, my, yeah, like when I did my, my master's on Blondell, I said essentially what you just said, that for him, the problem with imminentism is that it's not imminent enough. Precisely. And right? therefore loses its true imminence. Exactly. And and that's kind of what it ends proves. up in a kind of Archimedean rationalism. Strangely. Exactly. And, that, and that's, his, that's his proof, essentially, with L'Action. The thing you desire is outside yourself. And it's why everyone hated him so much, because he actually showed them how how naive they were as philosophers for thinking that they could figure out the problem. So obviously Hegel is a big uh, player in all this. And I think this is why he's so vital to be taken seriously. Um, He's not someone I've read much, but I'm understanding more and more why he's so important to engage with because really his spirit, if you will, continues to live everywhere. everywhere. It's everywhere. And racist month thinkers have been wrongly vilified as closeted Hegelians simply because they do take him seriously, but they're, but they're transforming him from within. They're gutting him from within in order to show where his imminent path leads to all kinds of, and I I'm interrupting, but it's, it's very instructive to me. And I was reading this somewhere when you you get, uh, you get hyper imminentists like a Jacob Bohm. Uh, in, 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 the, in that in the German tradition and in, in tradition of idealism, and you get this hyper immanentism, which almost always, if it doesn't have a proper Christological Chalcedonian 
sort of notion of the analogical relationship between the divine and the human nature and grace. If it doesn't have that, if everything just gets collapsed into this imminent frame, even if it's cast in a spiritual term, it always eventuates in a kind of rationalism. Yeah. It always eventuates in a kind of totalitarianism. Yes. It's a strange internal logic that once you lose that proper God-world relationship in your notion of the imminent, a secularized imminentism in Inevitably is destructive. Yes. Um, sorry, my brain. ADHD sometimes means I have twenty ideas hitting my brain at once. I don't know how to get them all. Well, in I order. keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Helping. It's okay. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's 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 good stuff. Um, so, okay, I'm going to just talk, and I'll I'll it'll come together. No, here. <laughs> just go with it, brother. Go all right. With it. Uh, so let the imminent spirit flow through you. Right, exactly. So when it gets back to Vatican II things, and I think actually, from what I recall reading it a while ago, Tracy Rowland, I think is this kind of her argument around Vatican II and her culture in the Thomas tradition is that maybe the one error of the council, or at least maybe like a practical consideration that was not taken seriously was the question of culture. The subjective yes. receptivity of what it had to say. And I think if, you're, if, you're, if there is to be a critique of the council, it would probably be that. Because we didn't take like, and in that sense, we were still actually acting out of that neo-Thomistic manualism around yeah. objectivity, thinking that it's just going to be easily received. And in fact, the opposite yeah. was proved, right? So I don't think, and I think, so and we can actually probably do some favors in discussing the council more, where if there's going to be a critique, I think that is it. But it's not a, it's not a critique of substance. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a lacuna. It's a, well, it's a it theological is. lacuna. It is, and it, there's another lacuna that flows from that, and it, okay. I think it pertains to the Ratzingerian analysis of Vatican II, and it is this. Vatican II did not, let's let me back up a second. Vatican II, and I agree with you that the Resourcement Communio School sort of won the day at Vatican II, and a lot mm -hmm. of people agree with that. And and But Vatican II just sort of leaves that victory of the Resourcement School to be yeah. sort of gleaned out on your own. It, in other words, Vatican II implies a hermeneutic for its own interpretation, but it does right. not provide us with explicit keys to its own hermeneutical appropriation. What is our project? And I would submit yes. to you yeah, yeah, that, the, yeah. that the Second Vatican yeah. Council's project is the Resource Mont project, and it is this. It's, and it's ambitious as hell. It is the reinterrogation of the entirety of the tradition through a Christological, Christocentric focus mm -hmm. and lens. Mm -hmm. And that is like, as I've said before, that's like a gambler going all in. Yeah. And, and, and the council was taking a huge risk and saying, this is what we're doing. We are yeah. reinterpreting everything through this Christological reduction and this Christological lens. That mm -hmm. is why I named my blog, Gaudium et Spes 22, which is this mm -hmm. key interpretive paragraph you know you know it's the, mm -hmm. the classic one you know it's only in the light of the word made flesh that the mystery of man makes any sense mm -hmm. in other words you, you can't understand the world unless you understand the incarnation and that's mm -hmm. why john paul ii quoted gs22 and almost every single one of his major encyclicals thus in a sense giving us his papal interpretation of what the hermeneutical interpretive yes. key of the council is now to get back to, to Ratzinger, and, I'll, and then I'll let you talk, <laughs> since you're the guest. This is good. No, this is good. I, I, my one complaint sometimes is that you don't talk enough when you have guests on, so I'm, I'm grateful for this. Okay, now, yeah. Well, that's because, well, anyway, I don't want to go to that. Anyways, so my thing would be this, and I, and I think it's, it's Ratzinger's as well. 
immediately after the council, because the council did not provide us with its own hermeneutical key, it opened and it didn't it didn't adequately deal with a critique of, of the culture into which it was moving. Immediately after the council, that door was kicked open wide by the yeah. progressive wing of the church that simply wanted to interpret a giornamento and the opening of the church to the world as a blessing and a baptizing of that very same culture uh, yes. that, that we should have been critiquing or at least engaging constructively in yeah. order to do this De Lubakian humanist project of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I think this is Ratzinger's analysis as well. We have not yet even begun to scratch the surface of the radicalness of what the council was actually proposing Christologically for us right. to do. And you are right. This is where the universal call to holiness comes in as well. Now we have a papacy that is, in a sense, I don't know what it's doing, because I, it doesn't seem to be focused on that project at all anymore, which is, I think, only adding to this massive confusion and, and red pilling the red treads into just rejecting the council entirely. And I think Ratzinger, therefore, is entirely right to sort of like, uh, Dios mio, you know, the thing is, it hasn't been tried and found wanting. It has barely been tried at all. Right. So three things with that, I think. Uh, one is this is not due to any research. This is just due to me being a pastor and, and knowing things on the ground. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to do a thesis while you're a pastor, but also I'm really glad I'm doing it because it keeps you grounded. Um, I think that actually is also part of the error of the council in terms of who are the theologians. Well, none, Ratzinger is like one of the few, he only has what, two years of pastoral experience as an assistant yeah. at the council. Like, these are guys who are ingrained in the academy. Like it is really the first, I mean, outside of the first at seven, after the, after the schism, this is like the first really concretely theological council. Like it is the, it is the probably one oh, of the most theologically is. in-depth councils ever written by theologians, really, truly. And I'm for really grateful theologians, for it. And by theologians for other theologians. So that's your first problem. Well, the pro- so they didn't set up an interpretive, um, they didn't, yeah, they, didn't, they set up no hermeneutic afterwards, which then, and then how does Rome deal with it? Well, it deals with it according to the same culture it's dealt with everything, including the initial stages of implementing the council, which kind of got kiboshed, thanks be to God, bureaucratically. So you have a bureaucratic implementation of the council, which is just presuming it's all going to be received appropriately. Like we hear constantly sto- all these stories about Paul VI scratching his head, what's going on with the church. And, and I, and like, listen, I don't know if I can blame anybody for this per se. I, I just think it's it's demonstrating the poverty of things. So like I, I if we want the like I, I am more and more convinced that for the church to have a, a broader future in the West, and I'm speaking this from my clerical experience, obviously, so with the take it out with a grain of salt, but I we need people who have who are pastorally active and theologically deep. We need both. Yes. Because what yes. it does is the pastoral activity keeps me grounded in hearing what people's problems are. Like I can, it's funny. Every time you hear a confession, like, well, that's the problem of history ontology is at least that's what I'm thinking. But I obviously don't say that. Right. Um, I, I see the problem. I see the concrete expression of it. And, and, and I, I, you know, so if a counselor to happen today, I'd be saying, well, yeah, this is the, this is the reality that's happening. And I, I think that's still a problem today. I don't think, I don't think hierarchically there's enough listening happening actually even though we like to propose, we like to think we are. I think there's listening, but I think it's very one-sided. 
And I don't think it, and, and honestly, if we're going to truly listen, we also not, we need to not just listen at intra. <laughs> we need to be listening yeah. at extra. What is, if we're going to be missionary, what is the, what is the situation of people today? And that is the question that we all like, and that this is where like rats here and Guardini's guys are so great. You can't stop asking that question ever because history moves on. And this is where theology comes in. And this is why it's dynamic. And it's always, it, it's not just, well, here's this, the truths and that's it. And we're good. No, we know we live in the world. We know. We, and, and that like rats will say history is fallen by nature. It has to be because we're fallen by nature. Um, so, or sorry, not by nature, but you know, like we're we're constituted in in a fall. I should say, maybe is a better way to put it. But uh, um, if if history's fallen, like that means there's always going to be opposing forces in history. Always, there's always uh, there is always moments where an antichrist comes, if you will. Um, yeah. and, and so, if this is the case, we need to be aware of what those are and to engage them with the deepest pastorally rooted theology possible in order to to call it out and shed a light on it and to bring it out today that is the role of theology so when it gets back to the council i think we just we rec we had really amazing theology but um junky pastoral experience because i mean even back then like yeah. most bishops are what canon lawyers and again not a bad thing and i actually i think canon law is probably one of the more pastorally fruitful things in the church it's actually really vital for this but they don't they're not Who's listening to confessions? Who's doing spiritual direction? Who is uh, having fights yeah. with parishioners, pastors? And I think this is what yeah. we need to be taking seriously more if we actually want to start implementing the council. Because kind of going with what you're saying uh, is the way I've always kind of, you're right, Christologically rooted. And for me, it's that it's trying, actually is trying to develop a culture that takes the world seriously rooted in a sacramental ontology. Yeah. This is, this is it. And if you have yeah. that, you have everything. But it and but the problem is when you try to implement that, everyone opposes you because you're not you're not trad enough or, too, or you're not liberal enough or whatever. Oh, I know. And we're not looking at it from the right categories. Well, that's what I mean by the the the, the failure of the Christological focus uh, immediately yeah, exactly, after the council. Exactly. Everybody yeah. spins off into these largely political categories yeah. in their interpretation. It's liberal. It's conservative. It's trad. It's 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 secular. You know. It's, and and, yeah. and it's none of those things. Um, even and, you know, even Ratzinger, to go along with what you just said, Ratzinger admitted, I don't know where or when. I just remember reading it. There's yeah. a quote from him saying that uh, he thinks that the council, which was really a council of theologians for theologians, like I yeah. said, it was a theologians' council. Yeah, which is why it must be properly interpreted through whatever the dominant theology was. But anyway, I'll come back to that. But Ratzinger says. We were so focused on getting the theology right that we didn't stop to wonder what the pastoral implications of everything yeah. Yeah. was going yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why, like, the, even like I, I would argue sometimes this is maybe, and I, I struggle to say because I love him so much. I would say that this is maybe even his fatal flaw at times. This is why he never wanted to be a bishop. Well, he recognizes yeah. he's not practical. He's a very pastoral person. Like he really was. He really was. Even in, in all of his exercise of office. Uh, he really sought that he really wanted to be with the sheep in the manner that he could be. But I think for me, like actually an argument I've constantly made, I think one of the greatest faults of his papacy and people are gonna be shocked when I say this was Samarum Pontificum. And why? Interesting. Why? The theology in it's amazing. 
It's perfect. The principles he lays out are, are great. Though there's one fatal flaw. There were no practical guidelines for living it out. Because he talks about this liturgical di- dialogue between the two forms. Yeah. Yeah. So he's trying to de-siloize the Latin mass, which is the right move. Siloing's bad, always. He's trying to get it rooted in parishes and stuff like this. But as a priest, I am bound by the germ, by the general structure for the Roman Missal. He's saying, well, you know, I'm hoping there's like a liturgical dialogue between the, the two forms. And, and he wants an organic growth, and that's the right thing again. The problem was he didn't lay out the principles by which one could do that. Right. And so I, as a priest, am bound by the germ. And so I can't allow this dialogue to happen. And therefore, what is a great idea never gets acted on, except for in small little ways. I would say maybe the one thing we've seen is a greater openness, at least in certain areas, towards ad orientum. Uh, I think that's been the one little thing. But outside of that, he didn't lay out the principles. And so I think that's the problem sometimes when you when you're an academic theologian is it's not always the case, but you can forget that there are. How do you do this is an important question. And he didn't take into consideration that by allowing the free use of the TLM, that the net result was not going to be dialogue between the two forms and interpenetration, but the balkanization of both. And the hardening of positions of both and the weaponizing of both liturgies, one against the other, which put up this put up this horrible dynamic. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I think for as much concern as Pope Benedict had with the liturgy, and if you read all of his beautiful theological writings on the liturgy, one wonders why in his how many years was he Pope? Eight years? Um, Something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Eight years. And all the eight years of his papacy. Why did he not then make it his number one priority to once and for all reach a resolution on the liturgical reform, to set up a new Vatican-based liturgical commission to look into how the Novus Ordo can be improved by cross-fertilization with the elements of the older rite? I wonder, uh, I wonder honestly, with the, there's a, I have a couple ponderings on that. I think one of them is I don't think we're culturally ready for that as a church. I think that's I think, what he thought too. I think he thought that too. I think he could have done a study maybe and just let it kind of keep it on the DL download and just kind of keep it in the background type of thing. But I mean, it obviously leaked out. There's that. It is interesting that for someone who loved the liturgy so much, like I mean, technically Pope Francis has actually written more on liturgy than Benedict did, um, which is very interesting uh, in and of itself. Actually the popes in general didn't like talking about liturgy very much no. since like Pius the 12th is probably the one who did the most. Um, outside after that after the council and i don't know if they saw it as like a a minefield that it just wasn't it would cause more division than than unity uh, i don't know i don't yeah, know and I, al- I also I, think in, in ratzinger's case pope benedict's case that in you this comes out in his writings he had this powerful sense that one of the problems that the liturgical reform created was this overwhelming sense that the liturgy is this human creation that is endlessly plastic and malleable and mm-hmm. that the church can just basically do whatever the heck it wants to do with the liturgy. And so, and that's we're the doing, attitude of a lot of priests. Yeah. And exactly. Just come in and just do whatever they want. I'm like, and so I think he was leery of setting up yet another commission to come forward and right. say, okay, we're going to give you yet a different liturgy that right. represents the combining of the old with the new. And so now here you go with this new liturgy. And I just thought, I think that he thought that would simply double down on this idea, which that, you know, the liturgy is something we can, it's our playpen that we can do what we want. So you're right. I think he, he wanted, 
through Samorum for an organic development. Yeah. And let it last for a long time. And, well, and I mean, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, though, too, I think, I, I think this is part of the, for whatever reason, implementation has collapsed into council. And they're not the same thing. And I find that problematic because what happens then is why can't we have, if we really love the truth and we really love the church and we really love Christ, why can't we have an object, like you're saying, why can't we have, why is it so verboten to uh, have a real critical analysis of the implementation? Yeah. Why? And not just, not just yeah. bureaucratically from Rome, but also locally in dioceses and, and also what was going on culturally? Like, why can't we ask these questions? I don't get it. Because there, but, and it shows you that there's still strong sentimentalism. I, I think part of it is there's a lot of wounds from what the church was like. Because it's the other thing. People keep on forgetting this. Things were not rosy in the 1950s as much as they, no, if they were. They were not. If That's they why were, it the church, so exactly, exactly. If they were, this would not have collapsed. That there were already growing issues. And this is what the council saw again, right? Like, it saw these issues. We're not, yeah. we're not rooted sacramentally and at all and we need to reroute ourselves as this so and we have to take modernity seriously it's not going away we can't we can't we can't privatize this anymore so how do we live yeah. this in the contemporary context here's the ideas here's the way we're going to build this culture but we have to actually do that and so i think theologically in the church today i think this is where rats would say we have to be thinking about those questions how do we what are ways for the council to be implemented i think um are, and how do you preach this? And that means you also have to understand where are the mindsets of Catholics coming through the doors? Because most of them think things are privatized. Most of them act yes. out of this. This is the. But you have I think this is where the movements could actually be a great counterpoint to this. Like for me, in many ways, the way I think about how I run my parish is I want to be a pastor to it as if it were a movement unto itself without it having to be any particular movement. Yeah. But, you know, you talk about pastoral. Yeah. The liturgy is where the rubber meets the road. That yes. is 99% of what Catholics know about their faith is their mm -hmm. one hour on Sunday and their encounter with the yes. liturgy. Yes. And the fact of the matter is the, the, the Novus Ordo was imposed from above. I mean, in yes. a very haphazard fashion. My yep. goodness, Louis Bouillet in his memoirs talks about how he was mm -hmm. notified that he had two hours to write Eucharistic prayer too, which he did on a notepad at some at some restaurant in a piazza in Rome, and then quickly scuttled up to the Vatican and said, "Here, here's Eucharistic prayer number two. Uh, and and this is no way to reform to reform the liturgy, which is why Bouillet himself became became bitter about this. And the yeah. fact of the matter is. It, this is a festering wound in the church. You, yeah. we, we can say, well, we don't want to treat the church, the liturgy as this fungible, changeable, endlessly right. plastic thing. Hey, newsflash, we already view it that way. The yeah. church already guaranteed that we're going to view it that way when in the 1970s, it just threw this new liturgy at us. Then along comes Sumorum and says, oh, by the way, that liturgy you weren't allowed to say before, now you can say that one too. And by the way, now we've got these Anglican ordinariate liturgies. So there's that too. Uh, and so all of a sudden now there's th this overwhelming sense of liturgical confusion. Mm -hmm. So my attitude is stop the insanity. Mm -hmm. if, if There's a reason why you have a Vatican. There's a reason why you have mm -hmm. a Pope. And this is one of those reasons. This mm -hmm. is a festering cancer in the church, these liturgical mm -hmm. wars. The church yeah. needs to do something about this. And, and it is mm -hmm. my deepest regret of Benedict's papacy 
that he, he engaged in halfway measures here out of a fear of something or other. I don't know what. Yeah. But he should have. He was the pope most suited yeah. to, in a sense, bringing a certain finality to the reform of the reform of, of the liturgy. And it didn't happen. I'm not saying that as obviously yeah. I love Pope Benedict. He's one of my great heroes, but no, no one is perfect. And, and I think, I, I, I think he dropped the ball here. I, I sad to say. Yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't disagree. I think, yeah, I, there's he, I mean, like you said, he doesn't like bureaucratically imposing things. He thinks that that's, uh, yeah. I mean, like, he, like people like to oppose him in Francis. There's actually a lot of stuff they're not opposed on. Like, like uh, Laudato Si and, and, and uh, Caritas and Veritate are very similar, actually. Like, yeah, they build on each other. Um, I, 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 when it came to liturgy, I, I mean, I think he he tried to show by example. Actually, I, I, where his greatest effect was his example. Yes, with how he celebrated, lit- he used media its right way. He because especially with the internet, how he celebrated mass, you start seeing these forms pop up with candles on the altar and crosses on the altar and stuff. Yeah. These things popping up all over the world. Why did this followed his example of how he celebrated liturgy? And so I think in that sense, he, he helped. And also yeah. we have to remember, we're talking from a North American context, right? Like, like I want the one thing I keep on thinking about with regards to Vatican II and liturgy and everything is they're not having issues in Africa. <laughs> no, no, they're not. They're, it's, they're, it's, they're not having issues there at all. Like, well, there's issues, I'm sure, but there's always issues. But I mean, like, yeah, my, it's different. My, yeah, my point isn't that the Novus Ordo yeah. can't engender exactly. great flourishing communities because it exactly. does and does so all over the world. Huh. My point is that in the first world, in like North America, yeah. Europe, it has become this festering bone of contention. Yeah. So and, and, and that needs to be that needs to be resolved. I'm sorry, it needs to be resolved. It needs to be resolved, but it and it needs to be resolved without siloing people. And I, this is my yes. Big, thing uh and by this i mean you need to like i think there needs to be allowance for pastors to be pastors and if they see a need in their local area by introducing certain things without it becoming something it the 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 and i actually i hesitate to call it the novus ordo because it's actually not called that it's like the typical edition right it's the yeah, it's the, yeah, the, the mass yeah. Paul the sick no, it's, it's, that's the, what everybody calls it, called so it, call right, it but, the, but the, the problem with calling it that is it actually builds up the idea that this is something fundamentally new. Yeah, it's true. And it's not, and it's not guilty it, as charged. Right? Oh no, no. And it's, it's like, I, I, I just, I say it sometimes myself. I'm like, I keep on trying to catch myself because there was this, uh, there's this video out there. It's like, uh, so I think a three-part series on the Latin mass and I forget what it's called right now. And, uh, mass the mass of the, of the ages. ages, it's yeah. not good. It's really bad. It's really bad, but they Dude keep on calling down. it the Novus Ordo on purpose. I think almost in a propagandist way. Anyways, um, so well, they, the whole I thing like, is propaganda. Oh, yeah, the whole thing's propaganda. Anyways, um, uh, yeah. So, so no, but thanks. just so like, I'll give you an example. Like, I'll I'll give you my experience at my parish because I think this could help. And I am definitely a man formed by 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 Pope Benedict. Uh, and interestingly, I think in some ways this actually kind of gets us back to the beginning around politics and everything because for him, liturgy is the summation of the Christian life. It's the ordering of society in its most perfect form, which is the coming towards God and waiting for him to come and him coming today and allowing that coming to inform our life outside of the liturgy. Right. So I, ha- I chant on Sunday, I chant most of the mass myself. Like I do right. whatever's in the yeah. missile. I would, you know, I haven't introduced any Latin yet, but there's, there's plans to do little bits here and there. Cause the, the again, what does the missile do? We've 
brought back the patents at communion time. My 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 choir is starting to do little bits of chant here and there. Um, I use Eucharistic prayer one. I I preach I think very solid homilies. We have at this moment in time. Actually, I just received someone yesterday, so it'd be down to twenty-seven. We have twenty-seven people in discussions or in RCIA or in discussions with me or formation with me about becoming Catholic. Twenty-seven okay. in a parish that has six hundred fifty people on a weekend. Yeah, that's great. My young adult group is growing every single week. I've had people say, "I've never seen so many young people here before," but they keep on saying, "Well, that's because you're answering our questions. You're taking us seriously." And the way you celebrate Mass makes this something okay. that it's is it, it it tells me that this matters. This is important. We have the most altar servers we've ever had. Now, I allow both boys and girls. It tends to be, though, that the boys are always the old. Like the If they're older, they're always boys because girls tend to – my experience has at least been that girls. I'm not against it because, again, the church – whatever the church allows, I allow. Right? Oh, awesome. I think that's a really – I think this is really important because it – but we're seeing growth in the most secular city in Canada, by the way. Um, and – that should say something to us that if you do liturgy well and beautifully and you don't yeah. radicalize it, you can actually even attract the people. Like I had someone who came up, we have, we actually have an SSPX church in my, in, in my area, uh, small, but there is yeah. one here and there's a family that goes there. And one of them came to mass one Sunday. He said to me after mass, he was, Oh father, I've never seen a mass. So, so reverent here before. It was beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Very good. And that's the thing, right? That's what we need. That's what we need. That's what we need. And and we this is what we need to start doing. And we need to allow for these things. And as pastors, though, we have to be careful. And this is why I keep on telling young people, because like my generation and younger, we don't have the wounds of the council. And so we don't really we don't we don't have the burdens of the tradition, traditional things that people have sometimes have with it. But speaking to what I said earlier, that older generation does have those wounds. And and they are real and they are deep. And so as a pastor, it is really my responsibility to keep them in the fold as best as possible, to bring them along as best as possible, to educate, but to listen and to get the young people to listen to them. What were things like in the 50s? Because why do they oppose it sometimes? They don't want the church of the 1950s. And rightfully so, like rightfully so. Yeah. And so there comes like this almost like emotional re reaction to it sometimes because it comes from a deep wound. So we need to hear that. And we need to well, listen to them, and but then they need to hear us to say that we're not bound by this is why we think it's important. And you can actually bring a real community in the parish. And I'm already seeing it in little ways already that the older generation, yeah. the youngers, are actually talking to each other. And then you've got people of my generation that don't want to yeah. go back to the 1970s. Right. There's yeah. another deep exactly. Wound. exactly. There's the exactly. wound of the preconciliar church, and there's the wound of that 70s show church. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's and, the and, here's and, the secret. And every generation has a wound. The, yeah. Every generation has a wound. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, look, I'm I know. Not, we're running out, we're running yeah. out of time. I wanted I to talk about apocalypse, but I don't think we've got yeah. time for that because I, I got to run. That yeah. only gives us another reason. To exactly. Have an, well, a, do another, have to get it. It'll give me time to develop it more because I've just developed this idea. idea more. Yeah. All right. And and I was a little bit critical of Ratzinger there with regard to, you know, Pope Benedict liturgy and stuff. But so I don't want to end on that note. I want to end <laughs> on a deeply hagiographical note, even though he has not yet passed because I think he is a living saint and I think he is yeah. a giant in the church. And I pray that he lives to be 150. And I don't think he just, wants if to. There are people, I think if you really want, like uh, we have used a lot of Google translate for this, but most of his early stuff is still not translated prior to no, like 1968. It's so rich. It's so, and if you read that stuff, you realize he didn't change and you already see 
these these intimations of things that mature over time. You see the real maturation of a thinker, actually. It's really beautiful to see. Um, but there's some real riches there. Some real, real riches. And it's, and so if there's anyone who's listening or watching this who speaks German, please like start translating this stuff for us because we need it. Translate the Ratzinger. Yes. All right. Let's make that our mandate here at, at, at the end of our show. Hey, Father Harrison, thank you so much for once Thanks again so another scintillating conversation. It helps that you and I... Uh, both of our opinions on everything are pretty much right and jive with each other. So that's always good. So, hey, thanks, everybody, uh, for joining well, us. And uh, stay tuned. We'll have Father Harrison back again someday. So thanks a lot, Father Harrison. Thank you.